The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to actually begin reading in chapter 4, verse 16. But listen to what Paul is. Paul is explaining why he has hope and why he is not downcast or depressed over his circumstances. Because as we've seen, as we've gone through the letter, we saw how that his life was threatened, his welfare was threatened in many different ways, and yet he doesn't lose heart. He says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, like, you know, like 12 years in prison. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know... That if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it, first put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, that is, in our present mortal bodies, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. He says, we're not groaning because we want to be outside the body. We are groaning because we want to see this mortal swallowed up by life. Back in chapter 8, let me just a note, back in chapter 8 of Romans, uh, Paul said that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, is able to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. In other words, you don't have to become immortal in order to serve Jesus. It's okay to serve Jesus while you're subject to death. You're in a dying body. And yet we can serve him because of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he goes on and says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us us the Spirit as a pledge, a pledge that he's going to fulfill this promise. Therefore, being always of good courage, being always courageous, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we, meet, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or worthless. How can we be courageous disciples in a fallen world like this? And if you can imagine yourself being in a context where persecution is the norm and that it's a dangerous thing to be very vocal about your faith in Christ, could you be courageous in that setting? And uh, Paul says, yes, because that's exactly what he faced. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, that we've already been going, we've been going through 2 Corinthians. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul began talking about the glory of the gospel ministry, which all of you are involved in who are believers in Christ. 
When God saved you, he called you into the ministry of the gospel, which means he called you to be a witness for Christ. Why? Because you have experienced Christ. (laughs) Because you have come to experience what it's like to have life in Jesus Christ, and therefore you are ambassadors for Christ. And so he talked about this gospel ministry. But then in chapter 4, verse 7, there's a, there's a switch. He makes a shift. Uh, Paul's focus shifts from the glory of the gospel message to the weakness of the gospel messengers. And when we all read that, we all said amen. That this, this glorious treasure is contained in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And we saw that was connected back to Gideon. If you remember when Gideon went against the Midianites and he had this little band of 300 fighting against thousands in the Midian army. And this was the, God kept, kept decreasing their number in order to get them down to a size that when they defeated the Midianites, there would be no question, God did this. And basically what he's saying is that's how God works. He loves to put us in situations that are far beyond our ability to accomplish. They're impossible from our perspective. And so he says, uh, he begins to talk about how those who are ministers of the gospel, that is all of us who are followers of Christ, we're very weak. We are earthen vessels. Now, what Gideon did, by the way, the reason the earth, earthen vessels is a picture of that is they put the torches, they put torches in the, these earthen vessels, and then when it was time, there were 300 of them surrounding thousands of Midian soldiers, their camp, and when it was time, they all broke the pitchers, and suddenly there's light everywhere, and they blew their trumpets, and the Midianites panicked and began to fight against each other. So what God did is he took what their resources... He said, you give me your resources, 300 men, some earthen vessels, some trumpets, and some torches, and he blessed those, and he used it for victory. And he says, that's how it is with us. Uh, don't be surprised that being a witness for Christ is, seems difficult and far beyond you. That's the point. That's God's design. That's his design, to put you in situations where you've got to trust him because you can't do it on your own. Well, why does he do this? Well, it was because he had confident faith. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 13. We, having the same spirit of faith, according to as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore we speak. Why do we speak about Christ? Because we believe. Because we have heard the message because we have received this good news and we have believed it, and therefore we speak. Paul lived by faith, so he didn't faint. He walked by faith. What is faith? Well, in the Bible, faith isn't what it is in the world. Faith isn't believing something that's not true. Faith is believing what God says. It's believing the testimony of God. And so Paul says, because I believe, therefore I speak. Now, in fact, I want want to read these, these verses I just read, verse 16 through 18. This is what he's talking about. He says, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
Paul isn't that old. He's still fairly young. He's in his 60s. And, uh, <laughs> and so he says, uh, even though our outer man is decaying, and this guy took a beating, as we'll find out later in 2 Corinthians. He was beaten many times. And he didn't have a, a uh, Nissan to drive around in. He walked. Sometimes he was in a ship, but it was hard traveling. He says, but even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, God is using these things in my life to prepare me for his presence. While we look, now he says, we're being transformed on the inside as we are looking, not at things that are seen, but things that are not seen. That is Christ. And as we believe the testimony of God about his son that's given to us in the word, and we believe we, we keep our eyes on that which we cannot see with our physical eyes, the person of Christ, and the glory of his person and his ministry. This is why Paul kept from fainting. Now, what he's going to do in chapter 5, we're going to look at these first 10 verses. He tells us another reason that he doesn't faint here in chapter 5. And it's, found, it's introduced in verse 1. We have a building of God. Paul looked forward by faith to the immortal, incorruptible body, the immortal body that wasn't going to die, that God would one day give him. What's confusing about this text, if you read it carefully, is he's talking about two things. He's talking about the state we're going to be in after we die, but before Jesus comes. Now, I'm sure all of us here are assuming that Jesus is going to come before we die. And Paul talked like that in his earlier epistles, and now he's talking like maybe he will die before Jesus comes. But what he assured the Thessalonians was that you're not going to miss out on a thing. And the reason he tells us here is that if you die, you immediately go into the presence of Christ. And that's what he says. We know that if the earthly tent, and remember Paul was a tent maker. He was really a leather worker, but one of the things he did was make tents, tabernacles that people stayed in temporarily. And so he describes our physical bodies as tents, that what we live in right now is temporary. You're going to be a lot better looking when you get your new body. And so don't waste your money on on all these fanciful ways of making yourself look better. Well, how do we know this? If you notice in verse 1, he says, we, it's because we know. In fact, that's the first thing he tells us. He says, because we know, that is, we have this assurance that death will be swallowed up by life, because this is what he says. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, or we strike a tent, we take the tent down. He says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In fact, it's said in such a way that it, you already have it. You already have it. Remember in, in John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. Well, in one sense, that's true right now because you're in Christ. And if you remember, Ephesians 1 says, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So we're in Christ, regardless of our present circumstances. But he says when we die, we are going to be in the very presence of Christ. 
You're not going to be in the ground. You're not going to be in the casket that your body will be, but you will be in the very presence of Jesus Christ. And so he says, we know, we have this assurance that death is going to be swallowed up by life. Well, how do we know? We know by the word of God. One of the things that we are absolutely convinced of as Christians is that the Bible is the word of God. As Paul puts it, all scripture is God-breathed, which means it's a product of God's own creative power. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, that is to tell us when we're wrong, for correction, to set us right, and for instruction in righteous living, teach us how to live. That's the reason we preach the Bible every week as we meet in our gatherings. It's because we believe the Bible is the word of God. And so we believe because it is written and we have read it, we've received it through the word. So this doctrinal teaching that we receive in the scriptures, this truth, this truth that's meant for us to know and understand and live by and be changed by. One of the inevitable, eternal, invisible things is a new body that we're going to get either at the rapture or when we're raised from the dead on the day of resurrection. The Bible teaches that when, if you die, you immediately enter into the presence of God, but you get your new body at the day of resurrection, and it's going to be glorious. Direct product of God. It's amazing. We all have been procreated, right? And so our looks and our characteristics have a lot to do with who our parents and grandparents and great-great-parents were. But one of these days, God is going to do to us what he did to Adam. He is, there's going to be a direct act of creation when he raises us from the dead and gives us a glorified body. My uh, uh, theology prof in the seminary said that we're going to be able to move at the, at the speed of thought. <laughs> That's kind of scary the way my mind works. <laughs> You'd be all over the place, wouldn't you? But it's going to be, it's, it's something that we can't even imagine what it's going to be like to have a body that's no longer mortal. The old body is described in two ways. He calls it an earthly house. Our body is designed for the earth. But 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So we have to get a new body in order to, to actually experience life in the presence of God for eternity, and we're going to receive one at the resurrection. Then he calls it a tent. That is, it, it, in fact, the word for a tent, skenos, is a word from which we get our word skin. If you stop and think about it, it's kind of like what it is, isn't it? You're living in your own skin. And there's, a certain, there's some things you can do about it, but not much. You know, they have, they have some cures for our skin condition, but not many. But one of these days, we're going to leave this tent. It's going to be struck. It's going to be pulled down, and we're going to enter into the presence of Christ. When will our, our, our tents be taken down? Well, either at death for the believer or at the rapture, when we're caught up. 1 Corinthians 4.13 says that when Christ comes back, he's going to catch us up. And he's, what he's teaching there is he's letting them know, your friends who die are not going to miss out on this event. Because the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. 
And you know, it doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill. The fact is, you're going to be like this guy that wrote the letter. You're going to be waiting for the final whistle of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be glorious. We're not going to be arguing about all-millennialism and pre-millennialism and post-millennialism on the way to heaven. Or in the way to meet Christ in the air. What's really important is we're going to be with Christ. Eschatology is the word for the, what the Bible teaches about last things. The most important thing about eschatology is Christ. It's all about Christ. What is Christ going to do? He's going to come and deliver his people. He's going to keep all of his promises. And he's going to fulfill all that he has promised for us when he comes. And he's going to come. Now in verse 1, it's our, our present possession is this tent. Uh, but there, in, in, if we die, we enter into the presence of Christ. We don't yet have our resurrected body. But evidently, if you're in this state between your death and your resurrection, it is not, you're not feeling naked or unclothed. If most of you are familiar with the account in the Gospels of, G, of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus meets, as, the, as three of his disciples look on, he meets with Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah don't have resurrection body yet, bodies yet. And yet they recognize them as being Moses and Elijah. And they meet and talk with Jesus. But then they disappear when the Father says to them, This is my beloved son, not Elijah, not Moses, Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because Peter had said, hey, let's build tabernacles for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And the father wanted to make it clear he's in a class all his own. But the point is that they were recognizable. So we don't, there's just a lot of things we don't know. There's some people who believe there's an intermediate body. I don't believe that that's what the text is teaching. Uh, because, it, because it's talking about a body that's eternal, that's going to be swallowed up by death. That it's going to swallow up death by life. And so it's exactly how it's, it's described in 1 Corinthians 15 when it's talking about the resurrection. But you're going to be happy with the situation. You're going to be in the presence of Christ. You're going to be with him. So he calls it a building of God, being at home, in other words. We're going to be at home with Christ when we die. That's a good thing to remember when a loved one dies who's a believer, that they are in the presence of Christ. They are in the presence of Christ. It's going to be in the future, we're going to receive a body that's not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavenlies. It's a body designed for life in the very presence of God and his people. And we're going to receive that before we experience the kingdom of God having come to the earth. Because we're going to live on the new earth in this resurrected body together with each other. Then second, we, he says that we don't lose heart because we groan, longing for the hope of glory. Paul is basically saying, I'm not afraid to die. It's true, the outer man is perishing. You've noticed, haven't you? The outer man is perishing. It's funny, as you get older, let me give you a little experience. As you get older, and if you forget anything, they assume it's dementia. I have been forgetful since I was 18 years old, or 15, or 12, or 10. It's no different. I'm just as forgetful. And the reason I forgot your name wasn't because I have dementia. It's because I don't pay attention to what people are saying most of the time. That's what my wife tells me anyway. If you would just listen, you would remember. 
but that's why I call her honey. Uh, <laughs> we are longing for the hope of glory. The hope of glory is what, it, what the coming of Christ is referred to. It's, it's the hope of glory in, in Romans chapter 5. We exult in the hope of glory. We are going to be perfectly outfitted to live in the presence of God. I believe in our intermediate state between death and resurrection, we're going to be clothed in glory. And we're going to feel right at home. You're You're going to be appropriately dressed in the presence of Christ. And Paul says, I want to be clothed. That is, I want to be clothed in something that's no longer mortal. You know, the, the Bible says that Jesus, in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus delivered us from Satan's hold on us, that we were kept under bondage to the fear of death. We're no longer in that bondage, but one of these days, we're not even going to have the remnants of death. No aging, no diminishing. We're going to be perfectly attired for the presence of God. Romans 8.22 says this is something that even the creation groans for, us being changed into immortal, immortality. It says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, while we are still in this state, we're living on an earth you know, they say, you know, all, I know all of you understand that there is such a thing as global warming or there's this diminishing of the resources because this, I'm giving some of you a bad time, um, but the point is, is that, yeah, we live on a creation that is affected by the curse and the whole creation groans until this time of restoration that's coming. And so take as good a care of it as you can, but believe me, you can't stop the corruption You can't stop it from winding down. It's because of the fall. But Jesus is the answer to that. And so uh, we know that even though the whole creation is groaning, that we're coming, we're going to be coming to a time where where things are going to be changed. In fact, this earth is said to be, is going to be completely renewed and restored and fit for the inhabitation of people who are immortal immortal. I mean, I think most of us are grateful that not everybody's immortal right now because we're wondering, how long, O oh Lord, do I have to put up with this? But, but Paul says he didn't want to be naked in verse 3. In his present life, mortal life was like nakedness. Now, I want you to turn with me to Philippians. It's just a couple books further to the back of your Bible. Philippians chapter 1. And notice what Paul says. Philippians 1, verse 21. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, that is in this state of mortality, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not, I, I do not know which to choose. In other words, I don't know whether it be better. I don't know which to choose. Should I go home and be with the Lord or should I remain here and continue being fruitful in ministry to, to you. And then he says in verse 23, he expresses this way, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better, to be with Christ, yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, that may sound egotistical to you because you don't understand the role of Paul in the life of the Philippians and the life of the people that he's writing to. But he was God's instrument to bring the gospel to them and to inform them of God's heart towards them. And he wanted to remain and continue because of his love for them. Now, it would be better for him that he would uh, die and be in the presence of the Lord. But he wanted, because he wanted life, but he said he wanted to be here because he wanted to continue to serve these people that he loved. I love the fact that Paul says here, and and he's quoting from the Old Testament, uh, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, And that is that death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. You know, death hangs over our heads uh, as mortal people. We all know that the death rate is 100%, right? We're all going to die unless Jesus comes first in our lifetime. Because Paul says if, if he comes in our lifetime, we'll be caught up to be with him. Um, now, the third thing he says, the reason that he has this courage as a, as a disciple and a disciple maker of Jesus, he says, we desire to please him in every respect. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. In other words, we feel courageous to do the will of God, to accomplish his purpose. Some of the, the word courage here, uh, it means to have confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing. Sometimes what we want, we pray for it all the time. I mean, when we pray together, we can hear each other saying, please remove all these obstacles so that life will be easy for us. I want to witness to my neighbor, would you please prepare him so that he's really nice when I talk to him about Christ? Paul says, but uh, we, we have courage. And so we have this firm confidence because we have a purpose in the face of the danger and testing that we face, to be courageous, to have courage. Most of you have heard this song by uh, Casting Crowns because they play it on Christian radio a lot. It's been around for a while. It was a part of a movie, I think. But it's called Courageous. It's written to men. It's written to men to be courageous as leaders of their homes. Christian men. He's talking about, the song keeps this refrain, keeps going through. We were made to be courageous. We were made to lead the way. God has given you a role, whether you like it or not, that he's given you a role to give leadership to your family uh, in, in their walk with Christ. In this magazine, uh, Amy's dad writes the opening article, and he, ta- he says something here that really blew me away. He said, every month, or maybe it's every week, I can't remember now, but on a regular basis, he does a, uh, a conference call with all of his grandkids, all 10 of them, and they're all on the phone together, and he talks to them about their Christian life and how they should be prepared for the difficulties of the Christian life and how what God has provided for them. Now, if any of those of you know the, the Johnsons, they have seven children, is it? 
seven children, and they're kind of, it's like one of those families where you look at them and you just shake your head and go, how is this possible? How do you have kids like this? <laughs> how do you have kids that are this way, seven of them, that, that love their parents and love people, have servants' hearts? Well, I guess part of the secret was Grandpa, who calls and talks to him. He's, he's courageous. Uh, I say that because I think one of the most scary things in the world for us in our culture is to talk to our children and grandchildren about Christ. I mean, to talk, I'm not talking about talking to them about why they should go to church. I'm talking about talking to them about Christ. To actually talk to them about Christ, about what it's like to walk with Christ. If I were to give you the assignment to go talk to this, this uh, new believer who's just come to faith in Christ, would you go and talk to them and tell them what it's like to walk with Christ? What would you tell them? You should be able to talk to them. You should be able to show them in the Word of God what God has called us to and what he's promised us and what it's like to have an ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what this song is calling men to do that we should be courageous, that uh, we shouldn't be just sitting on the sidelines watching and being passive observers, that we should be leading. God's called us to make disciples, and where that starts, obviously, is in our homes, and it's the hardest place to start. Jesus said this. He said that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own hometown. Remember when he went to Nazareth, where he grew up? When Jesus went to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he grew up, they didn't want to listen to him. It says he couldn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. They had no, they didn't, they, here he is performing miracles, raising people from the dead and doing all these incredible things, which were signs that he truly was a Messiah. But when he goes to his hometown, he could only do a few miracles <laughs> because of their lack of faith. What does that mean anyway? You mean Jesus can't do miracles if you don't have faith? No, that's not what it means. It means they wouldn't ask him for anything. And if, if you want to you feel guilty, just think about what you've asked God for this week. What have you actually asked him for? That reveals what you can trust him for. What can you trust him for? Well, uh, courage in the Christian life, walking with courage as you follow Christ, means that you have total trust in him and so that you know whatever you come up against, he is going to accomplish his purpose in you and through you if you're simply faithful. Faithful simply means you're full of faith. Do you trust him? And so... We're, we are in a spiritual warfare, and uh, God has placed us in a fallen world, and he's going to keep us here until he's ready to take us home. And what he wants for us is to have the same attitude that Paul did, is that we are courageous because we have this trust in Christ. But he not only wanted deliverance from the, the weakness of the mortal body, but he also wanted to actually experience what it, was, what it was to be in the very presence of Christ. He had experienced it before. Remember on the road to Damascus and afterwards? It was really scary at first, that first encounter. 
Um, But we too want that. We desire to be in his presence, but then we also desire to please him in every respect. Please him in every respect. Is that legalism? Is it legalistic for us to encourage each other to live in such a way that you please God in every respect? No, it's not. In fact, let me show you. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, turn to Colossians. uh, Turn over a few books. There's uh, Galatians. I mean, sorry. Yes, Galatians. There's Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. If you'll turn there for a second. Colossians chapter 1. These are the instructions on how to come to the place in your Christian life that you please him in every respect. In, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, for this reason. Now, you have to understand, Paul's writing to people at Colossae that he's never met. Uh, he's gotten word from him, and they have supported him. He's in prison, so he hasn't even seen them. But he's gotten reports about what's going on in their lives. And so he writes to them. And in in the first chapter, he says, for this reason, because we've been informed about your love in the spirit. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled. This is what Paul was praying for these, these believers. We pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now understand what that means for us. That means that what Paul is praying, and he would pray for us too, is that the Word of God would not just be something that we own, or even that we read on some kind of schedule way, but that the truth of the Word of God would impact us to such a degree that we would be filled with a knowledge of Him through His Word. He says, I, I continue to pray this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you actually see its practical implications in your life. How do you do that? Well, it's not by just signing up for a class. It's by getting in the word yourself. One of the things that has to happen for you and me and every other Christian is we have to be in the word in order to follow this path that he's praying for. The very next verse, he says, why? Why?" He answers the question, why should we do that? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And then he he tells you, he describes what that kind of life is. You want to know what it's like to live a life that is to walk in a manner of the Lord to please him in all respects? Here's what it is. This is a description. These are participial phrases that describe, it's like a video of the life that's lived that pleases him in all respects. Here's what it is. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness means you stay at the task. You continue to serve him when it's no longer easy, when it's no longer convenient. Steadfastness. And then he says this, this is really, and patience. Patience? You mean patience is, uh, is what I have to have in order to, to please him in all respects? Wow, that's, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Patience. Pa- the word patience <clears throat> means putting up with difficult people. Now, I know some of you don't have any difficult people in your life. But you are difficult. And, uh, and so pray for patience for those people that have to put up with you. But then get this. 
He says, as you, as you experience this patience from the word of God, the word of God having this kind of impact in your life, he says, joyously, continually, he's talking about a process that's always going on, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. In other words, living like people who are actually controlled by the, the atmosphere of heaven where Christ is as we live our life here on earth. Why are you so happy? Well, because I'm walking with Jesus. That's the right answer. And so he tells us that, that Paul says he's, he's concerned. He wants to please the Lord in every respect. And what he's getting at is whether I'm here right now in this mortal body or whether I'm in his presence, I want to live in such a way that pleases him in every respect. Now turn back to 2 Corinthians for just a, a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I had five people complain the last time I preached because it was so short. And I don't want to, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so. I looked at it. It was actually 32 minutes. I didn't think it was that short. Ryan Peterson thought it was perfect because they could do music afterwards. But get this. He says, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him because, because, That's what the word for means, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Your deeds in the body right now, even though you're living in a mortal body, he says, I give you the spirit so that you can live a supernatural life. And he says, you'll have to, you, you must stand, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word bad there is phallos. We get our word fallow ground. It just means unfruitful. Whether it was good and beneficial or whether it was fruitless. Now what he's getting at is this. This is really a wonderful act of grace of God. Before you enter into eternity as a believer, you're going to stand before Christ And he's going to examine your works for your benefit because wouldn't it be horrible to spend eternity having been rewarded for something that you did for the wrong motive? That'd be terrible. You've had that happen before. Somebody's, they think you've done something really good for them and you really didn't. You did it and vengeance or something and they think it was a, an act of your grace and then you feel guilty because they're misinformed. They don't understand you didn't have the right motive. Well, that isn't going to happen in heaven. Because he's going to examine our works. Now, I want you to notice several things about this. this it's called, the word judgment is the word bema, or the word judgment seat is the word bema. And that, what that was, it was, the, it was the, the place where the judge at the Olympics would sit and hand out the rewards for participation in the Olympics. Now, I say participation. I'm not talking about like Little League in the United States where every kid gets a big trophy just for participating. Now, this is you're going to be rewarded for what you did for Christ out of love for Christ and love for people. Some of those things nobody in the world knows about except you. And you, maybe you've even forgotten that. So that the rewards we actually receive are based upon the truth, what's really true. And so he says, first of all, it's necessary because we must all appear before the Bema Seed. Every Christian is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment to see whether you're going to heaven or not. This is a judgment to, to determine the works that you did out of the right motive so that you can be rewarded for them. 
Now he's not, God's not wondering what you've done. He knows, but it's so that you know. And it's for all Christians. He says, we all, it's, it's judgment of practice and not position. It's not for sin. It's not the great white throne judgment. It's the judgment of your works so that you could be rewarded. And the Christian will be, will appear. He'll be manifested before Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. See, that's what's important about Christian ministry. It's the motive of your heart. Why do you do it? Because he's going to judge our, he's going to examine our motives. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is the most astounding truth is that the Bible teaches that Christ is going to present you to the Father as his disciple. So the Father will have a word of praise for you. That almost sounds like heresy, doesn't it? In fact, in Jude, it says that when he presents you, he'll do it with great joy. It actually has the idea he's going to be like singing psalms as he presents you to the Father in joy of what he's done in your life. See, Jesus, the reason we do good works as Christians is because Christ is at work in our hearts. And this is going to happen when the Lord returns. When we're caught up, harpazo, raptured, and into the very presence of Christ, we'll be rewarded. The results are the rewards or loss of rewards. In 1 Corinthians 3... Verses 9 through 15, it talks about this, that we're going to stand in his presence. In fact, it says our works will be examined the way an inspector on a building would examine the materials that are used by the builders. Did they use the right material? What's the right material for building on the kingdom? It's faith and love. It's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And get this, the, the rewards are crowns. This is what they, they, what they would receive at the Olympics if they won a race was a wreath to put on their head. I know that's not impressive to you, but it was impressive to them. My grandson, who's 13, went to a tournament, a basketball tournament, and his team won the tournament. They got a trophy that's absolutely magnificent. It's three this tall. That's ridiculous. But at least it wasn't just a participation trophy. But listen to these crowns. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that there's an incorruptible crown for living as a disciple. Living as a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who makes other followers of Jesus. And there's going to be a crown. An incorruptible crown. It's going to last forever. And then a crown of rejoicing for witnessing, First Thessalonians 2.19, when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, a crown of righteousness for loving his appearing. I'm, I'm teaching a class on eschatology at, at Cornerstone, and uh, it's really difficult for me because I have so many questions I don't have answers to. And so I'm trying to take these guys through this, and I'm trying to become convinced myself about some things that I'm just has become so fuzzy to me. I can't figure out how to put certain things together. And they paid good money for this. <laughs> but what it's been doing to me, it's been forcing me to get into the text of Scripture and believe the promises of God. 
And then he says, and I do love his appearing. Oh, it's going to be incredible when we get, when we are in the presence of Christ, when we meet all these people that I just, like this guy that I just read to you, his letter, who's been, spent 12 years in prison just because he wants to serve Christ. Just because he's committed and he's courageous in serving Christ. We're going to meet guys like that and gals like that. And then we're told that there's a crown of life for enduring trials. Enduring trials, not just having trials, but enduring, which means to remain faithful under pressure. As God puts you through pressure, that you continue to be faithful to him. And then a crown of glory for faithful pastors. (laughs) But we might say, isn't that wrong? I mean, isn't that legalism? No, it's biblical. It's what the Bible says. It's pleasing to our Father. It's like when my grandson came home with that trophy, I was really glad for him. I mean, I, I made a big deal out of it. And God says he's going to take delight in the fact that we are rewarded for faithfulness to Christ. So we can live as courageous disciple of Jesus because we know, we, that is, we have assurance of real life after death. We're going to be, if we die serving him, we'll go right into his presence. And he'll say, welcome home. We'll leave the land of the dying to enter into the land of the living. So we can have courage because we know we have assurance of real life after death, that death is going to be swallowed up in life. We groan, we have courage because we groan, because we have this, the hope of glory. Uh, I'm, I'm much more uh, excited about going to be with Christ than I am um, facing what I have to face next year. Aren't you? And then we, we can have courage because we desire to be pleasing to him. You knew put that in your heart? You see, how do you know? Well, I know if you're a disciple of Jesus that you want to please him. I know that. That's why it's easy to, to make Christians feel guilty. Because we know what they desire. But I want you to know that God's love for you, his concern for you, his actions towards you cannot even be compared with your best efforts because his love for you is overwhelming. It can't be measured. And this is why we're told in, in Romans 5, it says that the Spirit of God does this repeatedly. He gushes forth God's love for you in your heart. He fills your heart with an awareness of his love for you. So you'd be encouraged in this walk with Christ. So this isn't, you're not the Lone Ranger. You're not just a bunch of independent contractors, franchise owners. You're followers of Jesus. You're disciples and therefore disciple makers. And we as a church want to be encouraging to each other because we're all engaged in this work. We're all engaged in this work. And, uh, you know, what leadership is, it's influence. And basically what we're always doing is influencing people to follow what we do. And so that should be a real incentive in the way that you follow Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to close with some, a couple of songs. Our Father, we bow our hearts before you. Uh, we are aware of how glorious your plan and purpose is for us. 
What an astounding program and plan that you have to conform us into the image of Christ and to make us fruitful so that we, when we stand before Christ, we present to him ourselves and our labor for you, that it's going to delight your heart. We want to be faithful. We want to learn to please you in all respects. And we know that only comes as the word of God sinks deep in our hearts. And so we pray you'd make us a people of the word. Father, teach us how to be in the word, not only by ourselves, but with others, that we would grow and walk in expectation, walk with courage as we follow Christ. We ask these things. We pray that you would, that you would produce divine effects in our lives from these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.